As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I'm back in Virginia in front of a proper microphone. Joining me today is a gentleman who knows better than to kick a ball at an angry Christian Pulisic. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, this is your fourth show talking about the U.S. in about 16 hours. (laughs) How are you feeling about the U.S.? Are you burnt out or could you talk about them some more? Oh, no. I, I, Taylor, I've got lots of miles and lots of gas to burn on this particular topic. And, go. and to go back to that Christian Pulisic thing, yeah, it wasn't man. even him who got hit with the ball. It was Luca De La Torre, and Pulisic just was was pretty upset about that. <laughs> I guess, you know, protect your teammates, all that good stuff. Yes. But on first watch, I thought, oh, that thing hits Pulisic, and that's why he's so angry. But but no, it just hit his central midfield lookalike. Yeah, and who was also his, like, enforcer bouncer on the day. <laughs> right, I noticed right. that one a couple different times. So, yeah, I, I like the bond they've got there. But, Joe, I have a controversial question to start this episode. Would you prefer if the U.S. just scored five goals every game? Uh, you know, Taylor, I've thought long and hard about it. Mm-hmm. I was rolling over that question over and over in my head throughout the night. I, I think yes. Hot take, but I think yes. <laughs> Hot take indeed. All right. So to recap, the U.S. got an emphatic 5-1 victory at home to Panama, uh, all but ensuring qualification for the World Cup, even if their banner at the end had the players maybe thinking they had actually confirmed (laughs) qualification. Joe, we went over our initial thoughts last night. We're going to go deeper into the game today. Um, But I would encourage people to check that one out just to get more of like the instant take from a, a lot of it being like my sort of match day experience and some of Joe's observations and conversations with Graham Rutherford that he had in the live broadcasts. Uh, allocation Disorder also has their recap out. Paul and Sam were seated next to me. Uh, I know that Sam was very, very excited about Christian Pulisic and had some very nice things to say in his article. So I'm guessing that features prominently in their show. But for purposes of today, uh, Joe, you asked me last night if uh, in the BR show if this was their most impressive performance. Hmm. I said I thought it was under Greg Berhalter. I thought it was especially so for the first half. It was probably their strongest performance. What I had forgotten is that the away game in Panama the one nil loss was probably their <laughs> worst performance under Greg Berhalter. I went back, watched the lowlights of that one, read my notes through it. The difference really is night and day. And I had a lot of I'm still waiting to see what this team's identity is in my notes. 
in various ways. And it was a lot of getting knocked off the ball, being overwhelmed by the intensity of Panama's pressing, lots of long balls, lots of giveaways uh, cheaply in possession. Uh, and I'm really happy reading those notes again to see that we have a clear picture of the United States now. But, and this is where I am sort of taking us in a negative direction to begin, the numbers were not wholly great. The U.S. was outpossessed, could have gone 1-0 down early, uh, could have also had Panama equalize right after the U.S. went ahead. All that to say, Joe, what do you make of the USA's performance, broadly speaking, given some of those numbers, but given the emphatic nature of the win? I think the U.S. did everything they needed to do in this game. I have okay. I have very, very few gripes about the U.S., and I don't think anybody can have any major gripes given what we already mentioned. They're on the doorstep of the World Cup, right? They are just a hair away. All they have to do is not get smacked by Costa Rica, and they are top three, probably second in the Ocho, and they're going to Qatar in November. I mean, there's so much to like about this team right now, especially after the Mexico game where they play legitimately very well. And the same, I think, for, for stretches, especially in the first half of the game last night. They did everything they needed to do. Yeah, Panama came and outpossessed them. But Taylor, I think a huge part of that is the game state. By that, I mean the U.S. taking a relatively early lead and then quickly extending that lead to 3-0 inside of 30 minutes. At that point, the U.S. doesn't need to possess anymore. Panama needed three points here. They needed a result here, a way to stay alive, and they're now eliminated from World Cup contention. They cannot finish inside the top four. Panama were pushing early on to get something, and the U.S. said, okay, you can have a little bit of the ball. We're going to take it from you after you don't really move it anywhere valuable for you. We're going to take it, and we're going to run, and we're either going to attack quickly in transition, and the U.S. scored goals from that, or we're going to attack in possession, and the U.S. scored goals from that. Or we're going to attack on set pieces. The U.S. scored goals off of those kind of moments, not directly from a set piece. But mm-hmm. still, I mean, there was so much to like about how the U.S. approached this game. Baralter knew that Panama was going to need to go for it. I don't think they ever truly threatened in any real way until that Anibal Godoy header in, in late on in the second mm-hmm. half. I thought the U.S. were were very, very good. And I am tempted, Taylor, to think that when we combine the occasion, this being the most important game the U.S. has played since October 10th, 2017, hands down, when you combine the occasion with the on-field product, I am very tempted to say that this was the best game that the U.S. has played under Greg Berhalter. There's other contenders, sure. Mexico, early on in this World Cup qualifying cycle, is maybe the, the biggest contender in my mind. But man, I should say Mexico at home. But Mexico away wasn't too bad either. But Mexico at home. Mm-hmm. But man, this game... I was I was nervous a little bit. I had some anxiety headed into this game, and, and the U.S. threw that away fairly quickly in this match. And you've talked about that a couple times, how early the U.S. scored their goal with the penalty from Pulisic and how it's, what, 3-0 inside 27 minutes or thereabout. Yeah. And it did feel at that point like the game was over. They add two more goals. That makes it feel very much over. Uh, and when we break these games down, Joe, I like to try to kind of build – a narrative based on what I'm seeing. So is it uh, like the U.S. is struggling with uh, midfield possession, so they add in another midfielder at halftime and they're able to find a way through and get the result? Or do they have to adjust what they're doing and how do they adjust? What does the opposition do in response? I say that to say that in this game, it's much harder to do that because of those early goals, because this game did feel pretty over after 30 minutes and that ended up being the case. So I, I wonder if for the purposes of this review, given that we've already talked about it a little bit in a couple different ways, is it better just to go through some individual performances and some individual moments rather than trying to get a broader picture understanding of the team? I, I think, Taylor, you could be onto something there because, especially because I think the game, it did follow a pattern, mm-hmm. but it didn't follow a really 
confusing winding pattern with lots of <laughs> twists and turns, right? I mean, it was it was simply in my head, Panama coming out and pressing and being on the front foot for the first five, six, seven, eight minutes. The U.S. then uh, wrestling control back for them after the game had settled down and there were a few fewer fouls at that point. The U.S. then gets some momentum. They get some time on the ball. They get some set pieces. And then it's that that set piece that Walker Zimmerman draws, that, that penalty, excuse me, that Zimmerman draws from Anibal Godoy's elbow and forearm in the box. And he smartly holds onto the ball and it goes to VAR and the U.S. get a penalty. And then the U.S. kind of dominate the rest of that first half. They they have control of the ball. They're still giving Panama some of the ball and attacking in transition. It was a good balance from them. And you fast forward and it's 4-0 at halftime. And my concerns about the U.S. burning too much energy at the Azteca turn out to be completely irrelevant. Not that they weren't showing a little bit with some of the sloppiness on the ball yeah. at times. But it didn't matter, right? Baralter played his cards right in hindsight at this point. So I think that for me is the flow of the game. And then the, the second half was not as influential legitimately in, in how this game played. You know, Gio Reyna comes on and was a star. We talked about that last night. But the game was done at that point. The only thing the U.S. was playing for was goal difference. And, and they accomplished some of that. And then they concede and that kind of erases it. But still, I think the pattern was pretty clear. The U.S. goes up early and, and doesn't have to worry too much for the rest of this game, which is good for them. Uh, two things in response to what you just said uh, there, Joe. First, I missed the thing uh, with Zimmerman uh, watching live. Uh, for people who might have done the same, can you explain what you mean when you say that he holds the ball before the penalty? Yeah, so the the U.S. go in the, and then they have that corner kick and Zimmerman draws the penalty and the referee doesn't call anything at first. And so play continues and it goes back and Panama, I believe, attack a little bit. Then the U.S. you know, are, are fighting back against that and the ball goes out of bounds. And VAR, that was the only time that VAR could have reviewed that play, I believe, is in that dead ball stoppage. And the U.S. were, were smart in that moment. Zimmerman was smart in that moment to not let his team play the ball back in quickly. Yeah. They hold on to the ball. The referee ends up going to VAR. It's called a penalty. And that's not the only nuance of this penalty moment. I think it's a lot of savvy play from the U.S. After the penalty is called and the ref points to the spot, Jesus Ferreira goes and he takes the ball. Like, he's going to mm-hmm. take the penalty kick. And as this happening, as this is happening, Taylor, I'm a little confused but then I remember you, Ryan, and Graham talking about the Club World Cup, right? The, the final between Chelsea and Palmeiras, yeah. right? That's what it was. And it was Azpilicueta who took the ball and then Havertz yep. who takes the penalty. I, I believe that was how yep. it went. And this was the same. It was Ferreira taking the ball, taking the heat from uh, from Panamanian players, taking the heckling, and then he gives it to Pulisic and Pulisic slots it home with a well-placed penalty, I'll add. He hits it up and, and to the left, not fully in the top left corner, but hard and high in the goal. It was a tough one to stop for Panama's goalkeeper. So that that was how that penalty sequence played out. And it was a huge moment, right? A huge moment for Christian Pulisic, who was, you know, really, really strong in this game and had a, a really a landmark game for him in his career. Huge moment for him and a, a massive moment and a go-ahead goal for the U.S. that really needed both of those things. I'm glad you mentioned the the Club World Cup as well, Joe, because my brain is weird sometimes and doesn't make connections that are very obvious to the point where sometimes, usually my wife will be like, did you not, you didn't realize that one? And... In thinking about it being Chelsea, like sometimes we'll see a player like emulate or copy what another team is doing or uh, like a, a way of taking a free kick or a way of setting up a set piece. And we'll be like, oh, that's the Chelsea thing or oh, that's the Wales thing or whatever it might be. And oftentimes the assumption would be like, oh, they must have watched them play. I sort of forget that it was Christian Pulisic's own club team <laughs> that did this. And I'm going to assume that he was, if not involved in that decision, that at least learned 
about like what that does and how it takes the pressure off the taker, how it absorbs some of the pressure for the person who can handle it. And I'm going to assume that he learned that at Chelsea and he brought that to the national team and it worked pretty well because he buried both of those penalties. Um, so I like Walker Zimmerman for holding the ball. I like Christian Pulisic for uh, scoring the goals. I like Jesus Ferreira for absorbing that pressure. Uh, what I don't like is myself a little bit, Joe, because I once again forgot a lesson from that first Panama game, which is that just like I did in this one, I fully expected Panama in that first game to be really defensive and to sit deep and to bunker and to frustrate and the U.S. would have to find their way through. And going back, if I had done this previously and read my notes, it is all about how Panama were really aggressive and really open and didn't have to bunker because the U.S. just kept turning the ball over, kept going long, kept giving them the ball back to then build their own possession and so I guess I shouldn't have then been surprised that Panama were so open and so aggressive against the United States. And Matt Doyle wrote a very good piece about this, that sometimes you have to sort of beat your opponent before you can beat them at soccer. I think that's a quote from Pablo Mastroeni, or paraphrasing it. And that was kind of what I think the opening minutes of this game were. It was really similar to that first game against Panama. It's the U.S. giving possession, giving away possession cheaply, going long a little bit too often, Panama having control of the ball, making some opportunities, really making the U.S. uncomfortable. But then, rather than just reverting to long ball and panicking and, and sort of backing off, the U.S. found their groove, as you said, and then they start attacking, and then they get their goal, and then they get another goal, and then they get another goal. And I think the way the U.S. was able to respond in the moment, obviously a home crowd made that uh, easier, as did an obviously stronger lineup from the first game against Panama. But I think the response from the U.S., the aggressiveness, the aggressiveness in the fight, the willingness to scrap and get into it with, with Panama. I think no U.S. player really ever backed down from a challenge, backed down from a confrontation. And I do think that made a massive difference in sort of breaking the morale of Panama pretty early. I totally agree, Taylor. The U.S. was up for it in this game very, very clearly. After a draining game at the Azteca, number one, and after a stomach, blo- a stomach bug or some sort of mm-hmm. illness wiped out a good chunk of the camp, apparently 20 people in the U.S.'s camp had dealt with some sort of stomach illness after their trip to Mexico City, including players like Gio Reyna. I believe Ethan Horvath was mentioned in there somewhere. So there's, they're dealing with, with issues here, fitness issues and illnesses. And the U.S. still was incredibly energetic and, and feisty. And they had each other's backs in this game so clearly as, as illustrated by that Pulisic and Luca de la Torre and Tyler. I mean, everybody's involved on the sideline there for the U.S. in that yeah. little, in that little scrap between Pulisic and Mikel Murillo. There was lots of those little moments in this game. So those are, Taylor, those are the times that the U.S. beat Panama. There's, there's other times though to get to the tactical part before we get into individual performers. There's other moments where the U.S. beat Panama at soccer, and this was really encouraging for me to see. There were tons of transition moments. We talked about how Panama wanted to have the ball, and, and more than I expected in this game. I think they, they were a little overambitious, Thomas Christensen and Panama here, and it came back to bite them. But there was lots of transition moments where the U.S. were dangerous all throughout the first half, in the second half as well. Gio Reyna getting forward, Shaq Moore getting forward, aggressive overlaps on the left side from Jedi Robinson. I mean, there's tons of those sequences in, in both the first half and the second half. But if you think about, Taylor, the the relatively few moments where the U.S. did have established possession in the middle third or in the final third, there were game-changing moments from those sequences. In the 10th minute, I want to start there. You have Jesus Ferreira, who's starting as this number nine, who looked very, very good. You have him dropping in and releasing Shaq Moore on that right side. And that's the play, Taylor, where Shaq Moore is fouled. We can see it on the replay. But the referee doesn't call it. And then a couple minutes later, I believe it's Paul Areola who draws a foul in a similar area, and then two corner kicks later, Zimmerman's on the ground, and, and a few seconds after that, they have the VAR penalty kick. 
So you have that sequence with Ferreira dropping in and it's nice little technical play from him to play Shaq Moore down that right side and Moore was aggressive on the overlap all throughout this game. You have that sequence, effective possession play that leads to an important moment for the U.S., then you have good structure in possession in that 4-3-3 shape with some fluidity in central midfield. You have good structure with depth and, and movement in behind, which is so key for Christian Pulisic. He makes a run in behind, and it's an over-the-top diagonal ball, Taylor, from Walker Zimmerman in the 23rd minute. And that's a key sequence in the U.S. That leads directly to, as I scroll down in my notes, that leads directly to Paul Areola's goal, right? The one where he jumps out of the yep. building. It's Zimmerman balling behind to Pulisic. Pulisic plays it to Jedi, who then crosses it in. And it's a lofted cross to Areola at the back post, who really has no no reason to be jumping that high. Paul Areola, you're making me look really, really bad with my pathetic vertical. It's a great sequence, though, from the U.S. with a, a nice, important long ball from the back from Walker Zimmerman. And then the, the last moment I have here that I think is a very obvious one, probably the most obvious one of the three, is that long possession sequence, Taylor. It's the it's the Jesus Ferreira goal off of the 14-pass sequence that then finds Pauliola's foot off of a Luca De La Torre ball to Shaq Moore. Moore cuts it back. It finds Ariola, who I'm 99.9% sure is shooting. Oh, the the shot is. doesn't really go <laughs> anywhere that Pauliola thinks it's, it's going to go, but it goes right to Jesus Ferreira, who was in a good spot, and he taps it home. And that's 3-0. Taylor, the U.S. was effective in possession. They were playing between the lines. De La Torre was finding good spots, pushing play forward. Gio Reyna coming off the bench in the second half. I tweeted out a pass of him in the 60th, 61st minute. He shapes like he's playing it wide right to Christian Pulisic and cuts it inside to Luca De La Torre instead, who then cuts it to Jesus Ferreira, who's in a great spot. There were lots of those really nice attacking sequences in this game that we just haven't seen at times in the U.S. I think this was one of the most effective possession games the U.S. has had in quite some time, which is a very weird thing to say when you were outpossessed as as heavily as they were in this game. But again, that's not a bad thing. When the game state dictates that, that's fine. And the U.S. was effective in the moments they had in this one. Joe, that feels like a very happy note to end part one on. When we come back, we'll continue with the tactics. We'll continue with some individual uh, performance analysis. And then maybe in part three, we will round it all up and talk a little bit about the Costa Rica game. But for now, a quick break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, uh, when we finished part one, you were talking about the U.S., how they played well, some of the, the, the patterns of attack, uh, patterns of their tactics. But I want to focus on one name you said there, Walker Zimmerman. I don't understand how he has become probably like the third <laughs> name on the term sh- on the team sheet, if not the second. But he has, and man, was he good uh, last night! Not just the the kind of veteran wisdom, like you mentioned already, to get the foul to hold the ball, but his distribution was good. That long ball over the top being a prime example. Uh, he ends up with the captain's armband once Tyler Adams and Christian Pulisic go off. 
I thought he was he was just a leader. He rallied the troops. He won headers. He fought for everything. He led by example. I think he and Miles Robinson have developed such a strong partnership. And not trying to take us down uh, like well-trod paths before, but I, I really struggle to see how we're going to see John Brooks in this team again because Chris Richards is going to be back. Uh, Greg Berhalter clearly likes Aaron Long. Eric Palmer-Brown got minutes uh, in this camp and maybe gets minutes against Costa Rica. So I, I don't see him disrupting the Zimmerman-Miles Robinson partnership as long as they're both healthy. Maybe we see John Brooks again, but I think it's, it's a long way back for him at this point. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all, Taylor. Zimmerman and Robinson have been incredibly effective together. They bring a level of athleticism that the U.S. needs, right? I mean, we can even see, if you think about the U.S.'s tactical approach to this window so far, they've been outpossessed pretty heavily in both games. And, and the U.S. still likes to have the ball, and I just detailed in the last segment how dangerous they were with the ball at times in this game. So they're not trying to forfeit the ball completely, but when you play against the ball at times, and when you want to be aggressive and pressing like the U.S. always is at this point in that 4-3-3 shape, it's helpful to have athletic center backs at the back. It's no secret, right, in terms of the on-field stuff, why these players might be a better fit at certain things than John Brooks is. And I think disrupting this starting center back pairing would be a mistake. Now, that's not me saying I don't think John Brooks should be involved with the U.S. from a sporting perspective, because I certainly think he does. He brings different things. But, man, these two guys, especially Zimmerman, have been excellent for the U.S. over the last couple of months. I mean, they've been really, really good, athletic, dangerous in the air. They both drew a penalty in this game on a set piece, right? They're influential in a whole number of different phases, and that brings so much value for this U.S. team. And as long as we're talking about uh, key players along the back line, we mentioned Miles Robinson. I want to talk about the right backs in a second. First, I think we should spend some time with Anthony Jedi Robinson, because that's another one who... Uh, like I think early on did not have strong performances for the United States. And I would argue some of that was the personnel ahead of him, not giving him much defensive cover, but he didn't help either. Some of his crossing was off. Some of his passing uh, suspect at times in his uh, positioning and instead now has become just this incredibly clutch performer for the U.S. who starts almost every single game, plays a ton of minutes, but seems always up for it, makes those overlapping runs, does a good job defensively, but also contributes to the attack, uh, has the the ball in for the uh, Paul Ariola 15-foot-in-the-air yep. header. We're just yep. going to keep making it higher and higher and higher. Uh, and that that's another player that I think we should spotlight for a moment just because I think at this point he's become so consistent for the U.S. that yes. it's that weird tendency of like oh yeah he's just good and that's always like we like you might not spend much time talking about Anthony Robinson because he's just there and he's an ever-present fixture and he's good for the U.S. so we should probably spend a moment just to say Anthony Robinson thanks for playing for the USA you're pretty good and and Taylor yes yes to all of that right I I think you add Robinson and you add Zimmerman to the list of players who have locked down spots for this U.S. team after there were initially some some question marks about who would be filling those roles especially left back, right? I mean, that's been a position for a long time that the U.S. just has not had someone, right? There, there's someone at left back. Now it really does feel like it's Jedi Robinson. Not that he's a perfect player, and he certainly wasn't perfect in this game. First minute has a turnover. He's muscled off the ball after he gets maybe a little overambitious driving into, I believe, a more central position from left back. Then in the 20th minute, he has that sloppy pass. He doesn't actually clear the ball or really connect any pass. That leads to that pure chaos sequence where Zach Steffen is flailing around. He's on the ground. He looks injured and maybe was. And then there's a Panamanian player who's injured behind him on the goal line. There's so much going on in that sequence. And, and it kind of starts with Jedi Robinson's inability to clear. But man, 
Is this guy a cyborg, Taylor? I don't, I don't, I genuinely don't understand. <laughs> he runs so much up and down. He just did that 72 hours earlier at altitude in an incredibly important game for the U.S. and comes back and does the exact same thing again in, in Orlando against Panama. And he, he looked maybe a little worse for wear, but not to the point where it was like, get, man, get this guy off the field. He can't do it anymore. He made some lung busting runs forward on that left wing and was key providing width, just like he's been for a, a large stretch of this World Cup qualifying cycle and especially a lot of these World Cup qualifiers. Yeah, so much credit to Jenna Robinson for the work that he put in on that left side. Where, what other players do you think we should spend some time talking about, Joe, uh, individual or otherwise? I think let's, let's finish out the back line here with Shaq uh, Moore, Taylor. Yeah. I mentioned him earlier, but this was a key talking point for Graham and I and you as well on the pregame show that we did with Bleacher Report. Also, quick pause. Thank you to everyone who came and watched those shows. We really appreciate you guys tuning in. We have a ton of fun doing them, and it was fun yesterday to have Graham involved. And uh, he stayed awake the whole time, which was a huge bonus. Taylor was on the phone from Orlando. Just a really cool experience, and I- I'm really thankful for everybody who tuned in to watch us and engage. Hey, Joe, actually, yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah. I-, I suspect that you're going to move swiftly past that into talking about actual tactics and things. I, I would like to pause for a moment to say... Joe Lowry deserves a ton of praise, folks, because he is so good on the fly when things have to be adapted or changed or adjusted. Uh, and, and Joe, like you haven't been hosting shows your whole life. It's a thing that you've learned how to do. And I think you've learned how to do it really, really well, man, because you run those BR shows excellently. You make me sort of like when I'm hosting episodes and then you host one, I'm like, maybe Joe should just be the full time host no, and I'll just be the no, cover no, guy no, hopping no. in. I mean that sincerely. You're very good at it, dude. And I would like to just take a moment to to praise you. And I know listeners also feel the same about Joe Lowry and everything he brings to the team. So just wanted to note, you did a great job in both those broadcasts. Thank you. Graham stayed awake. And I think that alone makes it a, a good <laughs> performance. But then he added insight and some funny comments as well. Yes. But it was really cool just to be able to uh, like sort of enjoy the pregame festivities, be there in the stadium, but not feel that pressure to like, I have to do everything. It was really cool that you two were just sort of running the show and I could jump in and be there. And uh, it meant a lot and it was really fun. So well done to both of you. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. Seriously. Thank you for those kind words. I I genuinely appreciate that. We had a blast. Like Graham killed it. I messaged him after and we talked a little bit after and and again this morning, like he was so, so good in a ridiculously late start and end time for him. And he, I mean, it's not even his national team and he, he brought so much good analysis. So yeah, Yeah. tons of fun all around. So thank you, Taylor, again, for, for all of that. And, and Shaq Moore to circle all the way back to where this started. (laughs) Look at that beautiful transition there. Just seamless. Shaq Moore was a player that we talked about a lot in that pregame show. And again, a little bit after the game because you know, we were never expecting Shaq Moore to play in this game uh, a couple of weeks ago, right? A week ago when the lineup and the, the roster for this camp came out, he wasn't on it, right? It was Dest and it was Yedlin as the two right backs. And, and shoot, I can't remember if Reggie Cannon was on that initial he roster was. or not. He was. Yeah, it was he three was, right backs and one left back. That's yeah. right. Then Dest goes down injured in the Europa League. So he's gone. Then DeAndre Yedlin picks up a, a second yellow card. So his, his first yellow card, but second of the qualifying uh, campaign. And so he's out for this game after that yellow against Mexico. And Reggie Cannon, we learned uh, a little before that was dealing with a positive COVID test. So he was out for this window as well. So Shaq Moore flies over from Spain. He comes to Orlando, and he had some imprecise moments, a couple inaccurate crosses early on in that right wing. But man, he was he was aggressive, and he was good enough to get the job done. He has a nice cutback for that, uh, for that passing sequence that leads to the Ferreira goal in the 27th minute. He was plenty good enough at that job, and I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for stepping in in a weird situation for him. Mentally, that's got to be strange. I know you're always supposed to be prepared for those kinds of things, 
But there's no way that Shaq Moore was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I can tell. I'm about to play in this really important game for the U.S., the most important one since 2017. There's just no way he was sitting in Spain thinking that three days ago. And yet yeah. here he is, and I, I thought he did the job fine, which is a, genuinely a big compliment to Shaq Moore. Uh, it sounds, though, Joe, like you're not moving him up the depth chart because I have it as Serginho Dest, DeAndre Yedlin, Reggie Cannon, not sure who's the backup there. Maybe it's a situational thing. And then I have it as Shaq Moore. Yeah. I think Reggie Cannon, DeAndre Yedlin, and obviously Serginho Dest have done plenty to cement their spots. It is nice to know that Shaq Moore can come in and deputize uh, in a pinch, but I- I'm assuming you still have him fourth on that list? I do. I could be convinced to move him up and, and swap places with Reggie Cannon, but Taylor, I wouldn't dare do that on a show that we're doing together, given your that love for Reggie Cannon. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> Let's look at the midfield for a moment then. Uh, Tyler Adams does Tyler Adams things. Uh, Eunice Musa does Eunice Musa things. Luca De La Torre did Weston McKinney things and mm. also did Luca De La Torre things. And that was very exciting to see. If we're looking at the U.S. as a team that has very likely qualified for the World Cup, I think the next question becomes... What's the squad going to look like yeah. and what is the depth and where uh, are we going to start seeing players tried in different areas or maybe like removed from certain rosters or not called in because we're building towards Qatar? And I think at this point, that midfield, the MMA midfield, is the first choice midfield with McKinney, Musa, and Adams. Yeah. But if you don't have that, Luca De La Torre, I think, showed a lot of reasons why he can step in if we need that. And I think one key thing that I saw was his willingness to uh, play on the half turn and then attack space on the dribble. And that's uh, what leads to the third goal for the U.S. is that in that 14-15 passing uh, sequence, it's him sort of deciding to attack and just move the ball forward five or ten yards, and then he plays in Shaq more. But that... That uh, decision to accelerate into space, it pulls defenders to him, and then he's able to thread that ball. It opens up space, and the same thing happens for Pulisic's final goal. He carries the ball into Panama's half on his own. He's harassed the whole way, but then he plays the ball out wide, and away the U.S. goes. And I thought between that and his ability to kind of handle the physicality of the game, when in the first 10 or 15 minutes, he did look a little bit out of sorts. He got a little discombobulated. He had some turnovers. He wasn't as good in the 1v1 defense, and he got knocked off the ball a couple times, but I think he really grew into the game and gave me a lot of confidence that if we do have an injury to McKinney or Musa, I think we have a capable replacement who isn't quite at their level at this point, but I think can do a job well enough. He does a passable impression, I'll say, Joe Lowry. De La Torre is just fast. He's way faster than I ever expect him to be. After watching him on film, you watch him with Heracles, and this might be a stylistic difference between the U.S. and, and Heracles and the Eredivisie. But man, I, I remember having the same thought after he plays against Honduras in the last window, Taylor, and he was very good in that game, but against a very, very poor Honduras team. So I didn't know exactly what to make from that, and we talked about that in our review show of that win for the U.S. against Honduras. I'm going to say a lot of the same things now that I said then. I have a lot of the same takeaways. He looked like he was playing at like 1.25 speed at times, right? You listen to a podcast. I do this all the time on on one and a quarter speed or one and a half speed. And and it just had that extra extra level to him, that extra bit of, of pace and how he plays with the ball, without the ball. He's aggressive. He's driving forward. He's driving play forward. He has a really great moment in the 37th minute where he's just showing so much speed and it's an outlet ball to Jedi in transition. There's so many of those moments, Taylor, that you already detailed. I thought he was very, very good in this game. Again, not flawless. There was lots of those little sloppy moments in in the U.S.'s own half that didn't really come back to bite them, but you probably want to clean those up ahead of more important games coming as the year progresses, fingers crossed for that. But man, there was so much to like about De La Torre. And this is one of those times, Taylor, where 
I, I don't know for you if watching this game in person left you with any more appreciation for some of these players than you might have otherwise, right? I remember watching, this is a, a dated reference, but Tyler Adams in a preseason game for the, for the New York Red Bulls mm-hmm. against Phoenix Rising. This was way back, maybe 2016, 2017. I, I honestly couldn't tell you at this point. But watching him in person and even then as a, as a young, young, young player, you could see how much of an engine this guy had. And I almost wonder for you, Taylor, did you get any extra appreciation for De La Torre? Because I, I think on camera, he pops with his speed and his pace of play. And if that's the case, I almost wonder how much more he pops in person. So I did, but honestly not for the reasons you mentioned. Okay. The reason why I, I have more of an appreciation for Luca De La Torre at this point is because the person seated to my left in this game was Bobby Warshaw. Oh, and do you yeah. know who Bobby Warshaw likes a lot, Joe Lowry? Luca De La Torre? That'd be the one. Uh, <laughs> so I think he was he was really impressed uh, by how quickly he can move the ball because we had, we had a slight debate about this one because I was saying he's a little slow for me sometimes. Bobby, you thought I meant literally talking about his pace uh, and when I was talking about his speed of play. He was like, no, he's one of the fastest decision makers in this pool. And so trying to remove some of my bias and watching him again, I still think some of the because he can make really quick decisions but he can still you can just you can see the processing sometimes you can see him checking his shoulder checking again making sure the pass is there and then playing it and if that maybe improves a half second i think he jumps up a level in my estimations but i do think his you can see what he's going for every time and sometimes it's basic passes sometimes it's trying to thread a needle and sometimes he's able to do that and so i think removing a little bit of my bias did make me appreciate sure. that he can step in there and and do the job. And I think I was mostly focused early on some of his turnovers and how he seemed a little bit out of sorts at times, And but I think grew into the game enough that by the end, he didn't stand out in a negative way and instead, I think, had a positive impact on that midfield. So uh, that was one who I think maybe was – that was Bobby's influence – not surprisingly, uh, a player that I'm going to praise watching them in person is Tyler Adams. Yeah. And that's just because he is all over the place, man. You don't get to see it as much because, you know, the camera's focused on the ball or, or those kind of big moments. But he is everywhere. He is putting out fires. He is talking to everybody. I talked about this last night in the uh, kind of abbreviated preview that he is spending a ton of his game Relaying instructions, talking to people, picking people up, having little conversations, making little adjustments, yelling at people on occasion if it's deserved. But he's also just flying around and making plays and filling gaps and shifting into areas when there's a uh, a counterattacking vulnerability. I, I think he just – he does so many things and has such good situational awareness that watching him in person – He's another one who it's easy to maybe not notice because he does so many little things that you start to just expect him to be there, and oftentimes he is. But Tyler Adams, I thought, was uh, strong. I I don't want to go too strong in my praising of him, but I thought he had another very fine performance for the U.S. Retweet. I I mean, I agree with every (laughs) single thing you said there. He's not flawless. and I don't know that he'll ever have a flawless game on the ball for the U.S., Mm -hmm. but that's not his job. You have to accept those couple of mistakes, and he did have them in this game on the ball early on especially, but at a certain point, the value you bring defensively, and these are even things we can't really measure, Taylor, right? There's a lot of stats that I like to talk about. You really can't measure the work and the value that Tyler Adams brings with his defensive movement, right? He he steps eight yards to one side to, to block a passing angle and force the opposition to recycle possession to the other side. 
that has value, right? But you can't, uh, at least at, as and right now, and I don't know how to do this, and I don't think stats in general can measure this. You can't fully value that and fully appreciate that besides just saying, dang, that's an incredibly useful skill. And he, he brings the U.S. so much effective movement in that six spot defensively. He is the key in so many ways to their press and their defensive structure, which we saw a lot of in this game in that 4-3-3 shape. This team just doesn't work without Tyler Adams. At least it doesn't work as well. And I think the fact that he gets out of Mexico with without a yellow card and he's able to start this game was huge for the U.S. And I, I thought he performed very, very well. I don't have a ton of notes on Yunus Musa for this one. I think part of that is because he comes off at halftime. Yeah. But I suspect part of that is also similar to Tyler Adams. He is all over the place and maybe more involved than I realized, but because he's not getting a goal or getting an assist or making some huge defensive play, I don't have as many like standout notes. But even in like rewatching the third goal, for example, I didn't remember how many times he gets on the ball and keeps it moving and just has little touches, little like I don't know why this is so important to me, but those little touches that pull in the defender and then he lays it off and then he moves. So he pulls the defender and then he moves. Now the defender moves with him and he's opened up a couple yards of space with that initial sort of drawing into the defender. Then the move opens up even more space. And I think he's another one who maybe isn't going to have the highlight moments. Obviously, he will have the Musa maneuver every now and then, though not enough for me to get my prediction. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. uh, I think he can do that. But in this game, I, I think I have... An idea that he had a lot of those little moments, but none that were truly stand out. Yeah, I don't have a ton on Yunus Musa in yeah. this game. Some sloppy stuff, just like the rest of the U.S.'s back seven in this game, but also some some nice work on the ball. 34th minute I have down specifically. He helps win the ball on the right side of the field and then turns away from pressure and helps the U.S. get into possession. He does those kinds of things. He's dangerous and physical in those 1v1 moments. He can muscle you off the ball. And then he's smooth and technical with it. He'll draw players in and then dish, right? I would talk about this on MLS Assist with Carlos Vela, specifically. Not with Carlos Vela, with Jordan Angeli, but about Carlos Vela. It'd be fun. It would be fun. It would be very, very fun. But about how Vela is so good at, uh, at drawing players in because he has the ball on a string on that left foot. He'll draw them in, he'll bait them into coming closer, and then he'll just lay the ball off to a teammate. And, and with Vela, he doesn't often move into space so much. But Musa does that last bit. He's not as technical as Vela is on the ball with his left. But he has the ability to keep the ball in a string close to him, draw players in, dish to a teammate in space, and then move to create even more space, like you're saying, Taylor. It's a great observation from you, and it's something that Yunus Musa is really, really good at. There we go. Uh, a few more uh, individual performances to be discussed, then Costa Rica. But first, one more break. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. Joe, I've got a few names that we have not yet mentioned and a couple that we already have, including Christian Pulisic, uh, oh, yeah. who gets the hat trick, uh, two penalties, both of them really, really well taken, and then a... Like a, a moment that I sort of laughed at in the moment, I think a lot of other people did, his worm celebration. Turns out, like one of the more heartwarming moments of this game, uh, here is his quote uh, through U.S. Soccer uh, from Pulisic. I met someone really special yesterday. His name was Mason, and his one request was that if I scored, he wanted to see a worm celebration. That's what that was for. Uh, Mason Ogle is Mason's name. He has osteosarcoma, which is bone cancer. He had gone to training with the U.S. He'd been invited down by U.S. Soccer, met Pulisic, met Jordan Morris, met another a couple other people on the team, was invited to the game. And so he had asked Pulisic to do that. Pulisic obliged. So just good guy Christian Pulisic uh, does the celebration, even if he doesn't necessarily nail the worm. But he did nail three goals, Joe. Yes, uh, he any did. Of them want, uh, any of them in particular that you want to discuss? Okay, first of all, with the worm. Man, if, yeah. if that's an impromptu worm, not too shabby. Right? Not too I tweeted shabby, right? about how, shabby. how rough it was on the outside. But man, if that wasn't really all that well prepared, I, I mean, that looks a lot better than my impromptu worm would look. I'll tell you that much. Taylor, I feel like you could actually do a, a worm. Can you? I feel like I might be able to. I feel like I, it's been since college or maybe a random wedding where I'd had a few too many. But yeah, uh, I, I yeah. could pull that one out, I think. I've, I bet Grant Ruffin could. I, that would be I would, a random skill, I think, for Grant. I would pay real, real money to see any of you, Grandma Ryan, do the worm. So that offer stands. I'll Venmo five bucks to whoever can send me a video of them doing that. But uh, getting back to Christian Pulisic, Taylor, as far as the goals go, I think it has to be the open play goal that like that we spend real time on here. It's the 65th minute. The U.S. win the ball in their half. It's Gio to Luca De La Torre who drives forward. De La Torre to Jedi. Jedi to De La Torre. De La Torre to Jedi again. Jedi crosses it in. And Pulisic somehow brings it down in the box. He's, he's maybe a little fortunate to, to spin away from that first defender with his first touch. But it's still a, a nice soft touch yeah. that at least gives him a chance to run onto it and get a second touch. So he has the first touch to get away from one defender. He cuts past a second defender in a very tight space, I should add, and then slots it away for the hat trick. You couldn't ask for a better hat trick goal, right? I mean, I, I'm not even so sure that Pulisic should have been on the field in that second half, to be totally yeah. honest with you. I would have been <laughs> completely fine with him not yep. playing and touching the field. But man, you, you got to know that he wanted that hat trick, right? After all the struggles he's had with the U.S. and how much time we've talked about him and every other podcast has been talking about the struggles that he's had with the national team, what a freeing moment that must be, right? And I know Sam and Paul talked about this, so I, I'm not going to get in too much into the the moment the, the momentum, I guess, aspect of it. But man, technically speaking, a really great goal. And it wasn't just the goal, Taylor, in, in his hat trick, really, that I thought Pulisic did well in this game. 
he was aggressive on and off the ball. He was yeah. making runs in behind that we talked about. I believe it was the El Salvador game in the last window where it was Tim Weah on one side and Christian Pulisic on the other side. And I think Jesus Ferreira started as the nine in that game. And Tim Weah was making all sorts of runs in behind the back line. And Pulisic, he, he wasn't. He was coming inside, clogging up some of the spacing centrally and not providing any real vertical outlet. In this game, I already talked about it with the Areola goal where Zimmerman plays him in behind, but there's that moment in the first half. There's the third minute where he's running in behind. He's aggressive in the counterpress to get back and help the U.S. win the ball in the 10th minute. He was assertive in this game. He was aggressive in this game. I don't know that all of the on-ball decision-making was perfect. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But, man, when you have the vertical nature of Pulisic, which we also saw against Mexico, when you couple that with his technical skill in the box— Man, that's a recipe for success for the U.S., and that's exactly what we saw against Panama. Joe, I'm glad I'm glad you said all that because I, I was having trouble sort of figuring out why this was such an interesting performance from Christian Pulisic, the hat trick aside. And I think what, what I'm landing on is that I don't think he is this team's leader. I don't think he is the person in the locker room who's picking people up and giving the motivational talks. I think that's Tyler Adams. I think that's probably Walker Zimmerman and, and probably Weston McKinney when he's there. But he is, I would say, far and away their most high-profile player. And there are many players for the U.S. playing for big clubs and are relatively well-known names. But I think Christian Pulisic for this team, for this U.S. team, is the household name. He's the one that I think my mom knows. My my, my wife knows. Like uh, They may know a few other ones, but they know Christian Pulisic. And so I think he's a player for this team who brings that reputation who brings that significance and I think leads by example. And the way he celebrates that first goal, it's a penalty. We've seen players score a penalty and then, you know, just like it's a muted celebration. That meant something to him. You could tell he wanted that goal. He was up for it. He wanted the second goal. I think he wanted to stay on the pitch. I wouldn't have been surprised if it was him coming off at halftime, but Ariola picks up that little bit of a knock. So maybe it's Ariola. but I also wouldn't be surprised if Pulisic at halftime said like, no, I'm not coming out. I want that hat trick. And I like that he sort of, demonstrated that fight, uh, backed it up with a little bit of attitude himself and drew some fouls and created some moments. And I think the team responded to that. And I think that's what he brings is this profile and prestige that leads by example. And on the night, I was very much okay with that. I was very much okay with Paul Areola. We should pause there to mention him. The great goal where he was 30 feet in the air. Yeah, 45 (laughs) feet, actually. (laughs) We're just going to keep it going. But it's also the... The sort of directional header that's like it's a goal score it's a goal scorer's goal that he flicks it he gets like the exact right flick but uh still has the pace to it to put into that far side netting it's a great goal it's great awareness it's good hard running from Paul Ariola he's involved in the third goal with the kind of snapshot that gets blocked as well but he's in there in the box and that was a thing again to give credit to Matt Doyle contrasting this performance with the first Panama game in which it was Jossi Zardes starting up top but he was often very isolated with those long balls in he had uh, attack around him, but usually they were a bit wider. In this one, the U.S. doing such a better job of getting numbers central with Jesus Ferreira dropping in a little bit deeper. Uh, but even even then, they were still able to get numbers in the box centrally so that Paul Evriola is there for that shot and that we have players there for rebounds and to back things up. I just think it was a better attacking performance. It seemed like everybody was on the same page. Paul Evriola, a big part of that. Christian Pulisic, certainly a big part of that. To stick on Paul Evriola for just one minute, Taylor, I agree with you on that goal. Really, really great moment from him, certainly. He also brings so much value, and this isn't a surprise, right? But he brings so much value 
defensively and tracking back, but also leading the press. Carl Carpenter, who's a great follow on Twitter, he works for Statsbomb, match analyst as well, has a ton of experience in, in soccer and working with coaches and working with players and helping them elevate their games. He had a, a compilation posted on Twitter this morning, I believe, of the U.S.'s press, which, again, we saw a lot of in this game, given how much of the ball Panama had. We saw a ton of the U.S. in that 4-3-3 shape. And the press for the U.S. is almost always shaped like like less of a 4-3-3, but more of a 4-3-1-2, with the nine dropping back, and he'll shade and use his cover shadow to block off one of the opposition central midfielders, especially if they're playing with a double pivot. You'll see him pick one of those two players. In this game, it was most often Anibal Godoy, who was sitting deeper for Panama. So Ferreira was a little deeper, and it was Pulisic and Areola forming that two, slightly ahead of the nine, and their job is to read the angle of the passes and is to go and close down hard on certain pressing triggers. Taylor, credit to you. Last night, you talked about how the U.S. was stepped high up the field, but they weren't always engaging the ball. Mm -hmm. Instead, they were waiting for those right moments. They were waiting for predetermined pressing cues, which in this game, one of which, to my eye at least, was a back pass, some sort of back pass from a fullback to the goalkeeper or a center back to the goalkeeper, something that moved the ball negatively from Panama in their own half. In those moments... Paul Areola was jumping to close down the ball. He was quick. He was assertive. He was aggressive in those moments. And it flustered Panama. I mean, they didn't create much in this game. The U.S. out-XG'd them by uh, a really wide margin, like a 5-to-1 ratio in this game, I believe, according to Paul Carr. They were aggressive and a big part of why Panama were so ineffective in open play in possession with all the ball that they had. It was Paul Areola jumping down their throats. Christian Pulisic doing some of that as well. But Ariola's energy was a great fit for this game, and he played very, very well, I thought. Uh, Joe, you want to spend some moments on Jesus Ferreira while we're talking about attackers? Yes. Yes, I do, Taylor. Yes, I do. He was good, right? I mean, he was yeah. influential in possession. I mentioned him impacting that Shaq Moore sequence early on in this game where he's dropping in to help progress play. He had a lot of those nice moments early on. He also had some incomplete passes, but I like the work that he's doing in those moments. And then he scores a goal, right? He scores off of that long passing sequence in the Areola scuff shot. That's in the 27th minute. And he also has a, a shot that I posted on Twitter. It's the Gio Reyna disguise pass to De La Torre, and then De La Torre cuts it back to Ferreira. And the shot goes over the bar, and it's not one that Ferreira is going to put on his highlight reel in terms of the shooting attempt. But his positioning in the box is so good. He sees space. He clearly is moving into a, a spot where there's no one around him. He's going to have the time to get the shot off. And I think if stats have taught us anything, it's that there's a lot of value in finding shooting positions and providing yourself with the opportunity to shoot at all. There's more value in that than there is in really trying to read too much into did the player hit the target or not? Because at this level, they're, they're going to hit the target at a pretty set percentage. You want players finding spots where they can shoot. And Ferreira did that in this game. I think this is obviously a more favorable game than, than the Mexico away, right? If Ferreira starts against Mexico... I'm not sure he's going to look great, but I'm not sure that any U.S. player is going to look all that great, depending on on who starts in that game at the Azteca. So it's much more of a favorable set of conditions for Ferreira in this game, but I, I thought he was excellent, just like a lot of the U.S. players were. If we're going back to kind of building out a depth chart for a moment, I think we've got Pulisic on the left wing with maybe Brendan Aronson in support. We've got Tim Weah on the right. That could be Gio Reyna as well starting. We'll see. And then maybe Paul Ariola rounding out that squad. But Joe, for a number nine, any more clarity or do you still feel like we've got a bunch of names who have some good moments, some not as good moments, and we don't really have clarity on who maybe those top three or four should be or in what order they should be? We still don't have a lot of clarity, but at mm -hmm. this point, Taylor, I, I think if there was a must-win game, 
I would probably start Jesus Ferreira. And that's yeah. that's what happened, right? That's what happened last night. That was a must-win game. With Costa Rica beating El Salvador 2-1, the U.S. needed three points to put themselves in a, a really strong position on the final match day. And they got the job done, and I think Ferreira was a big part of that. I I don't know that it's super obvious who's that starting number nine, who that starting number nine is, but for me it's Ferreira with the the rest of the crew a little behind him. But again, subject to change, right? Like a lot can change between now and November. I'd love to see Ferreira get more looks in the Nations League to get a, a bigger sample size on him with the U.S. The Nations League draw I think is later this week or next week. It's coming up quickly for the U.S. So. Hopefully we'll see more competitive matches from Ferreira in the U.S. shirt. But yeah. I think for me, it's him with some combination of Pepe and Pifak and Zardes and DK and Sargent and the whole rest of the crew. Brandon Vasquez, whoever you want to put in that group right now, I think they're all behind. <laughs> I, Joe, I think you are right to err on the side of caution in that one because like, I think we talked about this last night. But Ferreira has another chance uh, late in the second half when he is pretty open in the box and does not take the shot cleanly, maybe even misses the target entirely. And that's a game that's a moment where when you're five one up or five nil up at that point, not that big of a moment. Like it's okay. It could have been six. But if that game were nil nil or one one, that's one that we can't really afford to miss. And if he had been in that same spot against Pfock and he misses that goal, I think he comes in for a lot of criticism. And I would say it was as bad of a miss that he had in a pretty good opportunity. So I think there are still those moments that bring us back to like, ah, oh, like it's not quite where it needs to be. But I think you're right that we want to see more of Jesus Ferreira. I think it's trending in the right direction. Can and, I add, Taylor, can I add one more yeah. thing on that? Sorry, just, just to cut in. No, please. I think... I think maybe my takeaway from the U.S.'s number nine struggles, and there have been a lot of struggles, right, over the last, you know, few months and years or whatever at this point, is there is no U.S. player that is going to put the ball in the back of the net every single time they shoot, right? That's, that's just not realistic. You're talking about putting Pifak in, in Ferreira's shoes, and I think you might be talking about that, that shot that goes over the bar in the 61st minute. Maybe there's another one that I forgot, but either way, We've learned that every single striker is going to miss shots. Wandu at the World Cup. Jossie Zardes, that was his whole brand for a while. It's his long touch and he'd miss the target. Then you have Jesus Ferreira who missed shots against El Salvador and got a ton of flack for that, right? He had two chances in that game. One was a really good one that doesn't find the back of the net. Then you've got Pifak doing that against Mexico. You have Christian Pulisic doing that against Mexico. This kind of connects to the the rhetoric around that Pulisic miss and the Pifak miss. Oh, you know, they'll score that nine times out of ten. That's just not how it works. Like putting the ball in the back of the net is really, really hard. And I don't think, I don't think it's fair to criticize players really unless they're for some reason like freakishly bad at shooting and weirdly bad at that one part of the game. I think instead of criticizing players for those moments, what I try to do is highlight the times where they're getting in shooting positions, knowing that if you get Ferreira in that spot 10 times, he might actually put it in the back of the net four times or five times or six times, probably not nine times. But he's going to put the ball in the back enough time. So I I value, I really value players that find shooting positions over players that maybe weirdly overperform their XG like Daryl DK did for a while. And then he comes back down to earth. We've seen that happen enough times. That's just my little bit on on Ferreira and really all of the nines in this pool. They're not going to score every shot. But one thing that Ferreira really does have going for him, and and PFOC did to an extent. He has a nice little run and he's in a good spot against Mexico and, and Pulisic or whoever. Any of these forwards is it's important to value them getting in the right spots. I I believe over them putting the ball in the back of the net at a weird, unsustainable kind of rate. 
Joe Lowry doesn't care about goals. Got it. Cool. Just <laughs> want to make sure I wrote that one down. You know who does care about goals, Joe, and does care about winning? Gio, Gio Reyna. Reyna. <laughs> <laughs> you knew where I was going. Oh, yeah. I thought a lot about Gio Reyna on my flight home. Uh, Don't mostly, make it weird, Taylor. Don't make what's it weird. That? Don't make it weird, Taylor. Don't make it weird. <laughs> I mean, mostly just because it was like really early and uncomfortable and I couldn't quite sleep, but also because of the conversation we had last night where I find him very confusing because I personally did not like playing with players like Gio Reyna. Uh, not to say he like, I like very good players, but the, the player that is going to let you know when they're mad, that is going to let you know if you, th- if they think you should have done something differently, that wears their heart on their sleeve, that can be really good. It can also be really difficult to deal with. And it seems like the U S knows how to deal with it, knows how to accommodate it. And where, where I landed is that I think Gio Reyna is basically the soccer personification of the Michael Jordan and I took that personally meme that's how I'm choosing to understand him I think he is just ruthlessly competitive and wants to win so badly there was a quote during the rounds on Twitter about how even at like U11 he was crying if games didn't go their way because he wanted to win that badly I think that's what he brings is just the the desire and the motivation to make things happen to make sure the U.S. wins and that means not backing down from physical challenges, not being afraid to get into it. And I think he's probably a player that is not very fun to play against in training, uh, but you want on your team in games because he brings not only that ability that we know he has, but also that attitude and that swagger that backs it up. I think he's another player who sort of leads by example, uh, even if sometimes the example is kicking a player uh, behind the run of play. Yeah, I didn't like playing with Giorena type players either because I was bad and they would There's get that. mad at me because I'm not good enough. Right? I mean, that it, it doesn't it doesn't mesh with my personality, but also there's a reason why I'm not a professional athlete. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I don't have the the 80 foot vertical like Pariola. I don't have the technical skill. But with Giorena at this level, yes, it's going to ruffle some feathers, and I'm sure that that Jordan Pifak wasn't all that pleased with Giorena yeah. after the Mexico game. Like, there's going to be those little moments of conflict, and I, I assume that the locker room has a handle on that, right? Because there's going to be a lot more of that over the next decade. But man, his on-field ability is unmatched, I think, in this U.S. pool. He was fantastic in that second half. Silky touch right out of the break to release Shaq Moore down that right side. Then he gets in behind, and he misses the shot, but again, gets in a spot where he gets a shot off. For me, that's a positive. He, he won twos with Ferreira in that sequence. It's still in the first 60 seconds after the halftime whistle. That's two really meaningful plays that he has right out of the break he has a through ball to Polisic in the 59th minute and then has that disguised line breaking ball to De La Torre in the box there's other moments as well he was just dangerous man and if there's another takeaway I have from World Cup qualifying in general it's that Gio Reyna is a huge part of this team and we kind of forgot how big of a deal he was while he was gone and he was gone for a long time all the way from the first game of qualifying September 2nd against El Salvador to this window, right? The last game against Mexico on Thursday. He'd missed every other game in between. When he's on the field, the U.S. is a different and better team, and that's a good thing for the U.S. As it looks like, at least, Gio Reyna is getting back to health. He's getting back to full fitness. It's massive for the U.S. Uh, a name we have not mentioned, despite him playing the entire game, is Zach Steffen, who I thought did some good things. I think a slightly more calm performance, I think, solidifies him as the number one. 
I, I, there was just a couple moments of indecision. He flaps at a couple crosses. I thought his distribution was okay in this one. Going back and reading my notes from the first Panama game and seeing how many times I had notes about Turner's poor distribution is maybe blending into this one. But Joe, the thing that I, I think is also sort of factoring in here is that talking to uh, people who cover the U.S. team on the road day in and day out every single game, the consensus is Zach Steffen is far and away the number one. And that Matt Turner is in the conversation, but is very much the backup if both of them are fully fit, which was surprising to me because I think you and I see it as a more balanced, what do we need in the situation? Who's going to give you the best performance when you you combine shot stopping with distribution? And I think you and I have it as a slightly more even balance battle but it sounds like the consensus is that Greg Berhalter leans Zach Steffen if both are fully fit well and that doesn't really surprise me Taylor because the big thing with Matt Turner is his shot stopping data right like like that's the huge thing and the eye test right because they're they're connected the data comes from the film and what happens on the field they're inseparable so we, we talk about the difference between the data and the eye test really they're not all that different they're just different forms of the same thing but that the whole conversation around Turner versus Stefan is Turner is a much better shot stopper, and it's easiest to see that by looking at the numbers. But a lot of people don't look at the numbers, right? That's just not how they choose to think about soccer. That's not how they want to look at the game. And so Zach Stefan, he's been involved with the U.S. team longer. He has more connections with Berhalter dating back to Columbus. So it, it kind of makes sense that that's the general perception around this team. And you add to the fact that I think that's what Berhalter thinks as well. I mean, Zach Stefan has gotten starts over Matt Turner in games and they've both been involved. Turner started and had some good performances for the U.S. over the summer and in World Cup qualifying, but it seems like from who's played when that Zach Steffen is the guy. Of course, Turner is not in this camp, but Steffen's the the de facto starter, I think, in Greg Berhalter's mind and, and therefore kind of has to be in our minds until we see something that disproves that theory. It seems like Steffen is the guy, and I agree with you, Taylor. I don't think he was very good in this game at all. I think he was he was causing some chaos. There's that chaos sequence. That's really what I labeled it in my notes yeah. in the 20th minute yeah. where, where he's going down injured and flapping across and you're not really sure what's going on. And he, he turns out to be fine and plays the rest of the game. 29th minute, he can't claim a ball on a cross. Then he makes the, the save afterwards. But man, I mean, the ball goes through his fingers and it's a, it's a hard catch. He's almost full extension. It looks like to me, but didn't deal with that very well. Then the 53rd minute, there's a miscommunication between him and the center backs. And this might be on Walker Zimmerman. I'm honestly not sure because I've never been in this situation as a professional before. But the ball is coming in, and it kind of looks to me like Zimmerman is pointing to Stefan to come and claim it. Mm-hmm. Stefan doesn't really go full out for it. And a co- uh, not a Costa Rican player, a Panamanian player comes in and gets on the ball in between those players. So it's a weird moment, but he certainly doesn't command his box well in this game at all. I don't think that's going to have a big negative effect on Stefan in, in Baralther's eyes. I think he's still the number one for Greg Baralther with Matt Turner filling in as the backup. Uh, before we talk about the Costa Rica game, Joe, uh, when we're talking about the U.S. depth chart, I do have one more option uh, for who could potentially start at number nine if we do need a goal scorer. And that man is Charlie Bohm, uh, who is <laughs> who is uh, a beloved reporter, I would say. He's been writing about soccer for a good long while. But at the uh, the pickup game organized by Adam Bells of the Scuffed Podcast, Charlie Bohm can ball, man. That he was all over the place. I, I was admittedly very hungover, but Char- <laughs> like he was up and down, all over the place. Good on the ball, scoring goals. Uh, Charlie Bohm can-, can ball out, my friend. Taylor, give me give me more names from that futsal match because I know you all guys right. played, and I know there was a, a lot of folks there. There were so Charlie played well. I assume it was Bobby there. If Bobby was there, you already know he played well. 
Of course he did. Of course he did. Okay, he also yeah. told me that I believe his line was, I was the first player uh, he would cut from his team because <laughs> because I'm too dribbly. He, like, we were just warming up passing the ball. And he's like, it took you 10 seconds of passing back oh and forth before you had to do a move. I that cut is you so, so quickly. funny. <laughs> Thanks, so Bobby. Funny. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a love-hate-love relationship, Bobby. It is. Sean and I have. Um, I'll tell you, Joe, the, the, the kids are all right because there were there were three, like, I don't know, maybe maybe eleven year olds. I'm sure they were older. Maybe they were older than that. But goodness gracious, they could ball. And they also all like they they played shirtless and had like Ronaldo physiques and were bodying people <laughs> off the ball and scoring goals and played so quickly. Like it was genuinely a thing of nobody wanted to play them <laughs> because if you're playing that team, they're gonna win uh, and be dominant. Adam Bells can also can also ball a little bit, and I mean this in the best possible way. That dude has the energy and charisma uh, and uh, and the sort of like. I, I don't know. He's just a charming fella. Like he could be a he cult is. leader. Adam Bell's has the like the the ability, I think, to be a cult leader. I'm glad that he has instead chosen to talk about soccer for a living and bring that spirit because the tailgate was rowdy. He was all over the place uh, and was still a very great host and super fun to hang out with. So it was nice to get to hang out with him in person. Nice to see Charlie Bohm score some goals. Nice to uh, be verbally chastised by Bobby Warshaw <laughs> and to watch the next generation destroy the current generation. Yeah, the kids are all right. That's great news, Taylor. I love it. Uh, and the other thing, there was a little video posted. I think Sam posted on Twitter of the pickup game at, at one of those Orlando City courts. And Bells was in the, the frame closing someone down. And I was just reminded of how handsome that man is. He yes, has, that's what I'm saying. He's I'm got glad a, you said a beautiful it. <laughs> face. He has a beautiful face, beautiful hair. Adam, uh, just just great work on everything. Thank you. See, I felt a little awkward saying it, but that's kind of what I mean. It. He's like very I'll charismatic. It, He's an attractive dude. He could be a cult leader. That's how it goes. I don't mean that as an insult. <laughs> that's I guess it has to be an insult. I like it, Taylor. I like how instead of just saying he's good looking, you said, yeah, he's he's he has charisma and he could lead a cult. Like you went to that extreme instead of just laying it all out there. I'm here for it, though. I mean, I just he's just he's just a good dude to be around. That's all I mean. <laughs> I guess that's what I think of as cult leaders. That's an odd way to go with oh, it. Let's just move great. swiftly on to the Costa Rica game. Game, shall we okay okay yeah, that sounds good <laughs> oh uh what one more name i should shout actually uh michele uh from tudna yeah. michele, i'm trying to get his last name michele Gionone, uh, Gionone, thank you yeah. yeah uh also very very good uh and i believe was not drinking the night before at the uh the mls event we were at so i yeah. think that probably had an influence as well but yeah he that man can can play some ball as well uh none of them of course will be playing against costa rica our final game of this window Joe, how are we feeling about Costa Rica? There's the joke that we could, I think because the U.S. would have to lose by five or more than five to, to like drop places, that we could potentially forfeit this game. I don't think we should do that, but I do think that I would like to see the United States go out and go for the win and be aggressive and try to take it to Costa Rica, uh, a Costa Rica team that absolutely is going to be fighting to secure. They've already secured the fourth place spot, and it does feel like that will be um, sort of where their base level is, is being okay with that force play spot. But I would like to see the United States just make sure, uh, and at the very least, just keep it keep it tight and ideally get that result, get all three points there. Uh, anything in particular you would like to see from that game, Joe? Yeah, maybe a slight rotation in terms of the personnel. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you get Tim Weah back in the lineup. You get Yedlin back in, who's, who's going to be more fresh. You get Jordan Morris a start on the left wing, and you rest Pulisic, you rest Reyna. Acosta probably starts at the six. You might get Busio. I'm not expecting to see a, a full A team from the U.S. I think it makes sense to rest some players. But go out there and play your game. And at this point, that game can look a few different ways. It can look 
like you dominating the ball or more likely, especially on the road in Costa Rica, it's going to look a lot like this game. Weirdly, even though this game was a home match, it's going to look like you playing against the ball. It's going to look like you frustrating, showing those well-drilled defensive rotations in that 4-3-3. You're pressing a little bit, trying to win the ball high, attacking transition, and then be dangerous on the ball when you have it. I think those are the keys for this game for the U.S. I, I don't think, and players talked about it after the game, they know the job's not done. They don't think that, that they're already in Qatar because they're not, right? It's not over until you get out of this Costa Rica game with a, a five-goal difference loss or less. It's a terrible way to phrase that. But the U.S. could lose 5-0. I believe they could lose 6-1, 7-2, anything like that, and they would still be fine in this game. Just don't lose by six. And that's a ridiculous thing to say. Everything should be fine, and the U.S. should be in Qatar. But just finish the job. Go out there, play your game. Don't make any weird, giant changes. Don't change the, the shape needlessly. Just play your game. Put good players on the field. The U.S. has good players on the field. Rest some guys. If you need them off the bench, you'll have them fit and ready to go. This shouldn't be complicated. The U.S. should be able to get the job done, and I'm feeling very optimistic about their chances. Historically, they have not had uh, a great time in Costa Rica. Uh, I was having this conversation with the aforementioned Charles Bohm. Uh, he was saying that he thinks that they've won once, maybe in the 80s in Costa Rica, and that it was not a World Cup qualifier. In terms of actual qualifier results, they have not won a game. I'm not, I think they've gotten one draw on the road in Costa Rica, but that might not even be correct. So getting a win or getting a draw would be a big result and would be like historically a significant result, maybe coming after a five to one win. The expectations are a little bit too high. One thing to keep in mind, though, Brian Chiretta was tweeting about this. Uh, Costa Rica has, I think, eight players on yellow cards and yellow cards do not carry over to the World Cup, but they will carry over to that playoff game, uh, which Costa Rica very likely will be in. Uh, and so Joel Campbell, Martinez, Borges, Oviedo, Calvo, Fuller, Ruiz, and Venegas all carrying yellow cards. So if you're Costa Rica, do you start all of them? Do you play all those players knowing that one more yellow card in that game means they're not available for a one-off intercontinental playoff? I, I don't know. I don't know how much they're going to be going for this. Obviously, they do not want to be resoundingly defeated at home. That's not the way they want to end World Cup qualification either. But it will be a really difficult balancing act for them as to how do you get a good result while playing a team that has some level of consistency but doesn't end up picking up any yellow cards that are unnecessary. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging wire act for Costa Rica yeah. to figure out. I'm glad that that the U.S. isn't in that position because yeah. there's it, it was not impossible that they were going to be more in contention for that fourth place spot than they actually are. So again, I think the U.S. is in a, a good spot. If if those yellow card suspensions are a real risk for Costa Rica, it puts the U.S. in an even better position. It would take a genuine catastrophe for the U.S. to not qualify automatically on Wednesday. I am not at all expecting them to have trouble in this game. They might not win this game. I think that's a real risk. But I don't think they'll lose by the goal margin that they would need to to, to actually have to go and, and beat the winner from Oceania in, yeah. in that fourth-place playoff. So, Taylor, I think the U.S. is in a great spot. This is exactly what we wanted from this window yep. so far. Things, are going, things have been going according to plan. Greg Berhalter's gotten things right. He deserves a ton of credit for that. We gave him credit for that on the show last night. You mentioned all the good work that he's done. I think you were completely justified in doing so. This is everything that the U.S. wanted and needed, and it's it's fun, man. It's just fun. Yeah. 
And I think it's going to be a fun game in Costa Rica because we might get some experimentation. We might get a strong 11. I'm going to assume we'll still get Tyler Adams in midfield. Again, not just my bias, but because I think he's so uh, important to this team and did get a little bit of a rest at the end. Maybe we don't see Christian Pulisic. We shall see. Uh, But worth noting that if Costa Rica were going for this one, and I think we'll know in that first 15 minutes, I think they're going to be aggressive. I think they're going to commit numbers into the attack. I think they're going to try to go at the U.S. and try to kind of dictate the play and the tempo of this game, they might have an eye not on the United States, but on Mexico, who have, I think, El Salvador at home, a game you would expect them to win. But they've been struggling of late. It's not as though Mexico have been totally and wholly dominant. They got... It took them until very late to get the 1-0 win against Honduras, bottom of the table Honduras. And so maybe if you're Costa Rica, you're wondering, maybe El Salvador can run that one close. Maybe Mexico only gets the one point and we can jump above them. So that's where I think Costa Rica could kind of go all out for this one. But again, that's like putting all your eggs in one basket and then hoping the other team loses, which is a result outside of that basket. And I don't know how wise that would be. Either way, I think the opening 10 to 15 minutes will tell us a lot about how this game is going to go. We will be back to review that game, Allocation Disorder. We'll review it as well. Paul and Sam will be there on location. Paul Tenorio makes his triumphant return to Costa Rica, uh, and I, I'm sure <laughs> is going to be up for that one. So be sure you catch, out that, catch up with that Allocation Disorder episode. For now, Joe Lowry, anything else to talk about from USA Panama or anything else before we call this one a day? I don't think so. Congrats to the U.S. for making it this far, finishing yeah, the job on Wednesday. Things are, things are good, man. All right, my friend. Things are good, man. That's a great way to end. Joe Lowry, one more time. Thank you for all that you do, including talking to me for an over, over an hour today about the U.S. men's national team. Right back at you, Taylor. And listeners, thanks for listening to us talk about the U.S. men's national team for over an hour, uh, as well as the episode last night. Uh, there will be lister questions this week as well. We look forward to that and many more shows. But for now, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all soon.